Hello and welcome back to the State of Play podcast today on the 10th episode. 10 episodes already with my co-host as usual, Matt. Matt, how are you doing, man? Doing pretty well. 10 again, 10 episodes. It feels like we've uh, we've done a lot more, but because we've stretched them out, I think they have a lot more lasting impressions and uh, have a little more replay value. So getting to 10 episodes is pretty... Uh, is a little bit of a milestone for us, so a little pat on the back for uh, for me and Petrit right now. <laughs> Thank you very much, and I uh, I return the pat on your back as well. It's uh, it's been it's been good. As anything, when you start something, it's been a bit of a slow grind at first, but gathering a bit of momentum now. Who knows? Maybe some point in 2019, maybe next season, we go weekly. Who knows? It depends how much traction we get. Uh, recently started posting in the MLS Reddit. I told you about that, and we got a bit of action there, which was interesting. We've got some questions from there, which is really cool. I never knew there was much of a football or soccer community on Reddit, but I guess there's anything on there right now. Yeah, it's it's strange. Again, we're getting a couple questions coming in from Reddit, and and you know, occasionally we we kind of peek in and out of that to see what we got going on there because we are trying to utilize that platform and get this word out about our podcast. So it's interesting. I think we had one in maybe a previous episode too that we actually made mention of, or uh, maybe me and you just talked about it. But yeah, let's get let's get the Reddit viewer and uh, rather the Reddit uh, following in on this and uh, see what they have to say. Yeah, we want more questions from Twitter as well. So if you're listening and you're on Twitter, please do submit questions every. Uh, episode we'll be talking about various stories around the top five leagues and the MLS as well the bridge between European football and American soccer as I like to put it but we're not alone today are we Matt we are joined by a very special guest Yes, yeah, so we have um, a good friend of mine from uh, that I've gotten to know along the years uh, at Peace Football Times. Uh, great, uh, an expert in U.S. soccer. We'll tell you how it is. He he he's not biased in any case, and he's opinionated, but he knows what he's talking about. That is John Townsend. Um, John, how are you doing today? Matt, I'm great. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. It's it's a pleasure to have you on. I think for I speak for Petra as well. You know, it's you know getting that U.S. perspective and someone to uh, not sugarcoat anything, not tell you everything's going to be okay. You know, give you the shoulder to cry. And I think you know by reading your tweets, you're 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 very harsh, but I think you're 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 giving every you're telling people what they need to hear about what's really going on with you know the infrastructure um, and really the future of U.S. soccer. So again, it's uh, I'm really looking forward to doing this one with you, and I think our uh, listeners are really going to enjoy it as well. Oh, it's great to be here, yeah. and thank you both for for having me on. And ten episodes is very impressive. I, when I was doing my podcast with Jim Hart, uh, another dear friend of ours at these football times, it took us like maybe a hundred to get it right, and then and then it was like three a.m. recordings, and we do it weekly. Do it, and then he would call me, and we do like three in a week, and then not do one for a couple months. And it was it was a very ebb and flow of it. So do you have a good cadence, and you have a good chemistry i think you guys are doing a wonderful job so uh, i just want to say that before we get started here yeah really appreciate those words Jen. john thank you very much for for coming on and for me as a someone who lives in the uk where the infrastructure is a lot more robust when it comes to football or soccer um it's really interesting to gauge that insight or gain that insight from someone who is an expert in terms of that kind of u.s soccer infrastructure and where it could grow because I mean, the popularity of the sport is uh, ever-evolving, but the first thing we're going to speak about is kind of just giving a quick reaction about the uh, MLS Cup final. Uh, Atlanta United beating uh, Portland 2-0. So what, what are your thoughts on this, John, overall, and uh, just the MLS season as a whole? I think the the team who won was the team everybody fancied to win. I think Atlanta United plays a, a brand of, of soccer that... Uh, is unique in in that MLS was unable to really cope with how they they deployed their tactics and, and the way that they they play and I think um, it was no surprise to me that the result was what it was I mean I think um, the way that they've constructed their team from the the type of player that they ask for the type of coaching that um, unfortunately now they don't have but they but the the way that they set out in just a very quick a uh, couple of years, um, we haven't really seen that type of uh, barnstorming since 1998 with the Chicago Fire. Just a new team coming on as an expansion team and, and kind of taking the league by the scruff of the neck. And I think Atlanta United did that over two seasons. I think they're they're very well supported, and and there's a culture there that, again, as a, as an American, um, I, I'm encouraged that there is a very popular culture in Atlanta. I like what they are are building and doing. I do think, though, that um, MLS, as many will know, is kind of one of these quirky leagues where you can have an amazing season and then make the playoffs and all of a sudden 
form could go or you're not playing a game until three weeks later. It's a very weird way that uh, the, the road to the final actually transpires. So I think the final itself, um, I think the the result, I wasn't surprised by it. I, I was happy to see Atlanta United and the way they played. Um, happy to see them win. Portland is, is a team I think that has a bit of people's hearts here with um, Gio Savaresi as their coach. And I think that people wanted to see him succeed and take this uh, NASL uh, Cosmos uh, former like legend and then see what he can do in MLS. And I think he did very well for himself and his team. I think, um, you know, but at the end of the day, I think uh, Atlanta United had just had, just had too much and they, and, and Portland didn't have the answers for and them. Just, just for me, like, how has it because it's quite a weird thing to to say to someone right from europe these guys started their team like two years ago and now they're the champions like how how did they do it what was the journey like so you know i think atlanta has always had a very robust soccer culture from the youth game to the the regional state level to the silverbacks and and some of the um you know amateur leagues i think what Atlanta United did was they they matched the algorithm for how to build a an MLS team that is competitive that is attractive and then match that with the product and the business side and I, and I and I bring this up because in MLS it's very important to have a uh, a sport in what we would consider American football country you know a very um, competitive sporting landscape and so to pack a you know a stadium that the way they do. Um, uh, to, to have an owner that is, you know, the owner of an NFL team and to have the way to go about channeling the, um, the different subsets within Atlanta to build a fan base and then to assemble a team primarily composed of young Latin American players and, 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 and creating a blend of what works in MLS in terms of tactics and what attracts people and puts eyeballs on the pitch and, you know, people in seats. And I think that they did a really good job in terms of those things. And then the production side of it. I mean, I think there was, they were the talk of the league for the past two years, in my opinion. I mean, I think Matt can maybe chime in as an American. Um, it was a, having not been to a game in Atlanta, um, it seems as though it's a very well supported, very fun atmosphere. Um, and, 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 and I'm very critical of MLS culture and fan bases and, and trying to, copy and paste what's done in Europe or maybe South America and, and, and put it in the U.S. Um, but I do think that in MLS and in U.S. as a sport continues to grow and expand, um, that works. Um, I don't know in the long term, like if they don't win and, and, and things tend to ebb and flow, you know, the other way, um, if that culture remains as fervent as it is. But they have assembled a team and, and a franchise that – I think channeled a lot of what the Silverbacks built as well. I, and, and it probably will make some people mad by saying that, but I think they really tapped into a blueprint that a team that was in existence for a long time uh, was was uh, tapping into. And, and, and they were able to maybe put some steroids in there and, and, and bring that to the forefront. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with you, uh, John, on what you were saying about Atlanta. I think, you know, Grant Weir, when we talked about this on the previous episode as well, um, and I think in even previous, more previous, uh, previous ones with uh, involving Miguel Amarone and really what Atlanta United was all about, the first year, they again, they had all the fanfare, the culture, the big capacity crowds, the great attendance records and everything like that. But, you know, again, they crashed out to the Columbus crew. They kind of caught them at the wrong time. And then this year was really the, kind of the make or break year because we see year to year how some of these teams falter and, and again, go year to year where they're really good. The next year, perfect example was Toronto FC, right? They kind of fell off the, the face of the earth this year with a really uh, bad season overall. But, you know, with Atlanta, this was kind of that make or break year in the sense that you've heard all these rumblings, all these rumors surrounding kind of the um, the, the overall structure of the squad and Tata Martino, of, co- uh, of course, leaving, Miguel Amiron, uh, Joseph Martinez possibly leaving. So when that t- t- tends to happen and those t- guys tend to get, you know, you know, set records, score goals like Joseph Martinez did, um, y- you know, you start you start wondering, oh, how long is, is this sustainable is what I'm saying. And then to your point about, you know, can that culture stay around? Will, you know, will, will those, will the fan bases, will the people continue to show up if the team is not, you know, bringing in the big name players that are scoring goals? Because we know in a league like Major League Soccer, 
defense is not going to you know bring people to the to the, to the stands it's not going to sell you know, merchandise and all that stuff they want to see goals they want to see um get that you know that exposure and in order to do that you need to have the high profile players and ultimately be successful and be competitive Time will tell to see how if Atlanta United can continue to sustain this, not this early success they've had as a franchise. But so far, so good for them. And I agree with you. I think they were definitely the deserving team to win and, and really kind of the favorite if you looked at, um, you, know, you know, the overall matchup going into this one. So, um, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what their future lies for them. Almiron's been linked to, I believe, Arsenal, Newcastle, who looks like the... Uh, Newcastle's the main one Yeah, right they look like, in, they in look the, like the team that's probably going to land him. Again, it's not confirmed, but I think we'll definitely start to learn more about that. But um, And then, of course, Martino, you really don't know what's going to go on with the bench. He's done really good uh, work in the first two seasons. So there's going to be a shake-up, and I think that's kind of a, an interesting thing about MLS is that you know, got players, young talent c- arrives, and then it leaves just as quick the Diego Rossi's of the world like one or two years you feel max and then they're going to say well, okay well I've I've had my taste I got my exposure now I can go abroad Tyler Adams another one he's a young kid but Leipzig picked him up for for cheap he's going to join them in January um, and all these other players so uh, we'll dive more into of course but I just wanted to touch on um, you know what, what John was saying about Atlanta United yeah it's definitely an era of uh, goal the movie Miguel Almiron to, to Newcastle. So South American guy going to uh, Newcastle, going to Tyneside. Be interesting to see how he does that uh, if he goes there. But I just wanted to uh, talk a little bit more about that cultural aspect, right? We're seeing clubs over in Europe revamp their boards, have uh, directors of football, etc. Um, is this the model that everyone's going to copy, John, in the in the US, uh, in the MLS? This, is this going to be the success story everyone looks like? Well, we want to be like Atlanta United. Or is there another way to do it, perhaps by looking more at youth academies um, and getting the, the right players in through uh, the drafting system um, rather than going for the South American talent? Oh, that's a really good question. So I think the to, to the short end to answer the first part of that question is I think more franchises and clubs in the U.S. are going to start to to use the infrastructure and the blueprint of some of the more successful clubs in Europe. And I mean this by they will appoint a director of football. They will appoint um, – I mean, MLS – I'll get to the, the soccer side in a second. They go so far to make sure there's a culture. I mean, the Chicago Fire have their own DJ. Atlanta United has their own barber for the team. And they, they tweet these things out to connect with the youth. And so – to build that culture and the support, it's, it sounds ridiculous. I, saying this right All now, all these little gimmicky ridiculous. things, though, they really do change the perception that people have of clubs. not affiliated with MLS. Um, but I think director of football, I think that's going to be very common. I think in terms of getting um, a structured academy, a facility, um, I think the U.S. is going to have some of the most world-class level facilities. And and and, and again, this is this is all great. It's what's the product going to be like. So, so when Tata leaves and they have some, you know, I, I would imagine this is the sophomore album and they actually nailed it. <laughs> um, Next year, the expectation, is it going to be this ebb and flow we see with American franchise sports? One of my favorite um, hockey teams I'm from Chicago, the Chicago Blackhawks, they were great for 10 years. Now they are awful because of the, the way that the draft works and the, the mechanisms that make the league tick, the, the salary cap, the, the playoff structure. These are all non-soccer elements, but they're business elements. And so I think the standard will be to have a uh, model some – of the club structure, the franchise structure, the way you see in American sports with the general manager and, and the board and all that stuff. Then you also want specialists at the grassroots level. You want specialists at the youth level. You want specialists at the cultural level. You want marketing to get the people in the seats. You want people to 
associate the team with a brand. I think Manchester United probably did the best job at this in the early 90s, in the mid-90s as well. Um, I think they people associated that style of um, branding with good soccer. And, and again, I'm not a Manchester United fan by any stretch of the imagination, but they they teamed up with the Yankees and they had, you know, MUTV where you could watch, you know, things here in the States. I think MLS is trying to tap into these other market sectors. And um, this day and age, people are really um, keen on it. But the biggest competitor for Major League Soccer is we also have amazing coverage of the global game. We have amazing Premier League coverage, amazing Serie A coverage. We, I mean, we can find it anywhere now. You have a smartphone. You can find a probably a better brand of football, um, more access to some of these other things. So MLS has a, a conundrum, right? It's how do I continue to sell the business by making sure the product's sustainable? And the draft is 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 incredibly crazy too because you're pulling from uh, a different set of, of of player pool. You're pulling from the collegiate uh, ranks where you get a twenty two year old who um, in, in in world football that's not young. It's young, no, but it's not, yeah. you know what I mean? It's, it's in, in an MLS that is young. You have rookies who are 22 in Europe. You have 17 year olds playing for Borussia Dortmund. You have, you know, you just have a different um, standard. And I think uh, a, a spectrum of, of, of what is, um, is put on the field. So to answer your question, it's, it will become standard um, to what level. We'll have to see. Just before Matt um, comes in here, I just wanted to mention something there that you said about the the age differences, right? Sven Mistletap, the head of recruitment at Arsenal, as you listeners know, I'm an Arsenal fan. He was talking about why Brazil produced so many good footballers. And he said, by the time a Brazilian footballer is, um, I think he said 17, 18, or even younger than that, he said they've already played. It really is. No, it's, um. here's, I think the reps and the hours are are really meaningful. But I think the other aspect of this is, they're getting a, a football education, if you will, that you really can't get in an academy. You know, when you're on the, playing in the street, playing pickup, playing in a variety of different settings against older men, against, you know, um, you know, playing in different environments. I think you, you, see, you saw that a lot with um, generations of Dutch players, you know, Edgar Davids. And, and some of these players, even going back to Cruyff, like they, they were dribbling through street posts and, and playing in – on the football courts and now they come correct courts. I mean, it's, it's become a standard. And I think the, the, the thousands of reps and the, the, the thousands of hours and the, the meaningful competition of that. And then you add academy structure and special specialists and environment and tactics. It's like a, it's a, it's a different animal really. And I think the U S is still, in my opinion, decades away from having even a remote uh, impact on that. And, and people will, will probably disagree with me, but from a development standpoint, we can get into that later. I think we are still way farther away. There's a great story like telling people. Um, when I was in, in, in Holland, there was a, a an IX training with their youth team. And the training was uh, two, two players uh, paired up and they did some technical work, passing and receiving and doing some one-on-one work. And then another pair across the field did the same thing. And then the ref or sorry, the, the coach blew a whistle and they played what we call the island game where basically they put a grid out and the other team has a little grid and they would ping the ball, drive it across and you get three touches to get it back over. So one receives it, lays it off and, the, and it goes back over. They did that for about 60 minutes and they took breaks, but they that was what they were doing that day. In the US, players would get sick of that drill within five minutes. And so there's a mental endurance that you see. There's a mental discipline. There's a whole you know, uh, cultural aspect that we just don't have yet with our players. I mean, our players aren't playing on the playground. They're not playing in the garden. They're not playing in the street. So I think until that aspect is, um, is figured out and and developed, um, we're still going to develop the, the, the late bloomer who we call it the technically deficient, the athletic over the technical. Um, and, and that's okay. I mean, that's just what our country produces. It's just, it can't compete with what's going on in, in South America and Europe. No, I, I John, I, I definitely want to you know touch on that because I think you made a great point with regards to the mental uh, the mental aspect of the game and again instilling that type of um, approach or getting the young youngsters at that age it's it's different when they're a little bit older because it's easier to kind of grow and and uh, mold uh, teenage players. But when they're young, it's tough to get through to them. But if you can get those youngsters 
to believe in the training, believe in the concept, believe in the idea of what they're doing. 60 minutes to do a, a, a drill as simple as that means they understand to do it consistently and not moan, groan, you know, pout, all this, that, what have you, means they're buying into the culture, they're buying into the success, they're buying into everything like that. Whereas in this country, again, even you know, someone who who played baseball for, for many years, and in many ways you can draw parallels to this, Base, not every baseball player should be just doing cardio. Like they think, you know, you're, the training regimens. It's like, okay, we'll just go run a lap, and then you're doing a couple different drills. Like I feel like, you know, if you look at many of the the training sessions and the the the, the coaches at a young age, um, or the coaches rather in in this country with what they do and how they they take care of of growing youngsters, it, it seems as though it's very elementary. It doesn't really set these these kids up to succeed. It's more of a, just a, a day out. Um, and, and, and again, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with having kids because it's obviously having them be active is a great thing. But if you're looking, if we're talking about the U.S. men's national team and, and Major League Soccer as a whole and growing the product on the field, growing these players into uh, individuals who can be effective and, you know, big time players at a younger age than 23, 24, there's got to be something that's got to change there. They got to be able to buy into the different philosophies and, and buy into what they're actually being told and being taught. So I think, again, you made a great point with that. You know, again, you, we can see that same drill in this country be done for 10 minutes, 5 minutes, and then they go, they do cardio for the rest of the practice or a couple light passing drills and that's it or take shots. How many times do you see on a pitch they're just ripping free kick shots into an empty net and, and warming up that way? Like that's not the way to warm up, obviously, and that's really not going to set anybody up to succeed. It's the all-American warm-up. Well, the thing is, too, it's like anybody up to succeed. The thing, and the thing you hit on, too, is – you take any sport in isolation and, and any activity in isolation. I mean, I, I went to the University of Kentucky and some of the best basketball players would spend hours on their own doing jump shots, you know, and, and pull up jump shots and free throws and, you know, working on their craft away from everybody. And the difference between, I think, uh, the world-class talent we're seeing develop now around the world um, and what we produce here is when the players that make those mistakes um, – they're okay with the mistakes. They don't let that derail them. They actually feed off that where our players look to the sideline as mom and dad watching. They paid a lot of money for me to play is like, am I going to get cut? Like, and the reality is most players around the world, regardless of where you are at 18, you've either had your career already or you're, you're you better be on your way. I think here um, we tend to say, well, at 18, you can still have a career. Uh, and I think it's kind of a, it's a, it's a misnomer in sorts because you know, having a lot of family in Europe and, and knowing how it works there, by 18, you should be moving out of your apprenticeship into maybe signing your first professional contract or at least being a prospect for that. And and I think it's 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 a ruthless market. It's it's a very it's a very talent rich um, uh, global talent pool. And I think here in the U.S., um, the other thing that I would I would I would just mention in terms of the way we we get our player development cycles going is. We do not do a good job of making our players confident from a young age. Like people look at the the result of something, like how Manchester City plays out of the back, and they think that that's like a training session. Now that's an everyday thing. That's a that's a film session. That that's like a a very granular level, years long process. Um, I think here we we look to possibly look for perfection too young. And we don't let players develop and find out their mistakes and learn. And, and we don't coach the person. We just coach the player in this country. And th that's probably a different discussion. But I think when you get to what Atlanta United did, you know, they had players that grew up playing in different environments and in robust environments and aggressive environments. And, and, and they were able to compete in, in a league that is physically and athletically demanding, um, you know, not technically great, but this is, this is kind of the, the blueprint. So, the U.S. going forward will probably need to get specialists who've done it, lived it successfully, which is a really good segue into the Tyler Adams thing because he's going to meet up with Jesse Marsh from, from Red Bull over in Leipzig. And that's that's a huge thing is like learning and then translating that to the next generation. So I just I just want to ask you something quickly. I, I know that this this is a, a kind of a big subject and a big topic, um, you know, and that you've written extensively on and done it really well um, in, in a couple pieces for these football times. I, there's a lot 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 being talked about with regards to the again player development, uh, just the overall infrastructure, just U.S. soccer, soccer in this country in general, from the elementary level, the 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 
the young kids to even those in the, in, in, in high school, collegiate level, everything like that. And some of the just the, the problems uh, and the underlying problems with why we saw what happened uh, last November, of course, failing to qualify for a World Cup. It wasn't just it just it wasn't an overnight thing where they just dropped the ball and okay well, it was a one off thing. I think that was come, something that was inevitable and it was kind of a, um, a a growing problem that kind of eventually led to that uh, kind of catastrophic event. So I just want you to briefly you don't have to go too much into it again. Of course you know for anyone who's who's listening, make sure you guys check out the two pieces. We'll plug them on our account so you guys can check those out. But take us through some of the uh, the shortcomings, the the failures of. The U.S. soccer's infrastructure, I'm talking pay-to-play because that's obviously something I know you talk a ton about on Twitter. So just give us a little bit of an insight and give the, the listener um, what some of the problems are um, with currently with the U.S. Soccer Federation. And then um, you know we'll, we'll move on to the next thing, but just briefly. So the one thing I would encourage everyone to understand is we live in a, an environment in the U.S. and maybe other places, but we live in a microwave society where we want instant results without putting the necessary work in. And that's just the reality in anything. We want to be 10-minute abs. We want to have a six-pack. We want to uh, you know, fit to marathon in 30 days. Like These things are really off the mark in terms of how we view success and athletic success. We need to transition our frame of mind from a microwave society into a crockpot society where we can let things marinate. We can, add in, we can add ingredients, let them heat up, stir it around, mix it up a bit, and do it over and over and over again. And I think that's how we should approach these things. We immediately put kids in environments where they are made to choose between different types of clubs that are only separated based off of the money you pay, the label associated with the money. So it's called an elite club. It's called the Premier Club, and 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 for those who don't understand, in American soccer club systems, like you'll have the team name, and then it'll be Elite or Select or you know whatever. It's a buzzword, and parents cannot write checks fast enough to get their kid on the next team, with the hope of potentially playing for a college scholarship, which is important for sure. Um, the pay to play, I think, it's never going to go away. Um, I've accepted that. My biggest comment on pay to play is we need to make the game more accessible, more affordable and less exclusive. And, and we need to make it more inclusive. And I mean, there are probably a hundred Christian politics in development that will probably never be seen. We'll never know where they are. Our scouting is in my opinion, abysmal. It's, you know, we, we don't have to go too far to Jonathan you know, Gonzalez. It, it just, it's ridiculous how our scouting has been, I mean, we have very few full-time scouts, and what are they scouting? Do they know what they're scouting? Is scouting even a an industry here in terms of um, soccer? I think so. Identifying talent, retaining talent is another one. I mean, if we lose players to Mexico, we lose players to you know uh, other countries all the time, and and we gain players as well. But I think in terms of identifying talent, retaining talent, being inclusive, uh, being making the game affordable, I mean, I would love to see. I would love to see the federation work with other um, state associations and, you know, say, okay, from the ages of the U littles. So from, you know, three years old to six, the game is free. We'll fund that. We'll, we'll put all of our um, extra, we'll, we'll create monies for that. And then for maybe eight to 12, you pay for your player pass, but it's still free. And then when you start to get more competitive, then you can maybe choose a bit. Maybe you can actually, make it more accessible, but you're probably going to retain a player pool that has enjoyed the game. You've taken money out of the equation. So the pressure to wins off. And then you actually have allowed real development to come into play because again, it's not about the wins and losses. So I think we also need to um, think about what, what we want to look like. So in one of the articles I wrote, what is it American soccer wants to be? Does it want to be someone who comes second in CONCACAF and maybe makes the World Cup? Or do we want to be in the semifinal of the World Cup? Do we want to rethink our, our approach? I think the English FA has done a, an amazing job of instituting a different brand, a different culture within the youth teams. And we saw success with England's U-17s and their U-21s and, and, and so on and so forth. And then we saw it with the senior team. And we still see how they're still in development. I think they rethought their approach. They appointed somebody who had done it at different levels. And I think... You know, I can't compare the U.S. To, to England, but I do believe that rethinking the approach from the federation level is absolutely paramount. The problem is we have people in the federation who are being 
dictated by the business of it all. Like how much money can they make and what can they do to make it look good? And there's no incentive to do the things that I've just mentioned that I would know about. And again, I'm not suggesting that they're doing anything, they're doing nothing, but the reality is, is the steps that uh, we need to take, need to make it more inclusive, more affordable. We need to put the best coaches at the youngest levels, the way they do it around the world. I mean, I saw like Dennis Bergkamp, Mark Overmars, they're coaching IX youth. They don't want the first team job. They need to learn the craft of coaching. Um, I think coaching education should be way more affordable, way more inclusive as well. I think it should be extremely easy to learn and, and there should be more courses for people to take. I think that we just have to remove the business side at the youngest levels. And, you know, if you want to have a business at the teenage levels, I disagree with that, but you know, it's, it's a business after all, but I think we have productized the sport and, in the absence of a true sporting culture in soccer, like we don't see it all in the streets, I think we we lose out on a, a really crucial time and experience for these players. So well said there, John, that the productization of football, I really like that. It is a real problem though, the costs, just the general cost of football, but also the coaching costs that you mentioned there, even around in, in the UK to get your level two, it's you're talking thousands of pounds and not everyone has access to this money. Uh, there are certain schemes, but you know it's it's still tough and it doesn't really work that i think that model is definitely broken and you see it uh i I mean you just complimented the the english fa but there is still a lack of good english coaches if you compare them to other countries uh especially the the big five so there is that issue that i think that not everyone is doing really well i mean holland uh germany are doing really well in that aspect spain as well but it's just really expensive uh is there anything else you guys want to touch on before we move on uh in terms of the state of of u.s football or soccer oh i that was i that was fantastically put by john i think again you know if you know not to go through here because i'm sure he can do a whole hour or two hours just on this topic alone uh make sure you guys are reading make sure you guys are reading those articles uh they're long but they're definitely worth your time again he kind of goes into detail on everything and I definitely encourage you to uh, to take a look at those once we share them. We just want to move on to the uh, U.S. men's national team now, and um, Greg Berhalter, the U.S. coach. Um, what 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 are your thoughts here, John? And what do you kind of expect from him? What are your hopes? Oh, good. So, okay. So here's the thing: is um, I have no problem with Greg Berhalter being appointed as the coach. My problem is the process in which he got hired and how long it took and the lack of transparency, the lack of incentivization as to, you know, what was the, the, the coaching um, candidate pool looking like? I mean, we come, we come to find that other people were interested, but they weren't given interviews. Um, the fact that the coach had to speak, be a native speaker of English, there's a lot of things to kind of parse through. Um, in terms of Greg Berhalter, I think he is going to face a lot of what Bob Bradley faced when he was an interim coach in that, Anything he does poorly will be jumped on immediately. <laughs> Anything he does well will be um, probably devalued. Uh, I think he's in a no-win situation at the start. Now, do I think he's a competent coach? Sure, of course I do. Do I think he's the right coach to lead us forward? Now, it depends on who you ask. If you ask U.S. soccer heads and people who are really fans of MLS and, and really want an American to take over, sure, he's he's the right man. If you ask purists and, and people who want to be competitive in world football. Um, I don't think he's the guy. I don't think he's the right pick. I would have loved to see Tata Martino get an interview. Uh, Juan Carlos Osorio get an interview. I would love to see Pedro Vermees get an interview. Um, and if they did, maybe that it didn't work out. But the other thing about this is I think the U.S. men's national team um, coaching position is the hardest in U.S. soccer. So like of all the positions in U.S. soccer, I think this is the most difficult um, position because you are tasked with a player pool that is in development in the academy system that is broken here. There is a subset of players that cannot leave the U.S. fast enough for Germany. There are players that are in Europe. There are players in Holland. There are players in MLS that aren't getting minutes. So there's a whole other factor than there. Then MLS doesn't follow the FIFA calendar. So you're you know when you get your camps together, when you get your players fit, um, how they come into the camp. Um, you know I think. There's that aspect. I think the fact that U.S. soccer's chief commercial officer is Jay Berhalter, um, and he was involved in the hiring process for the GM and Ernie Stewart, that muddies the waters of um, was Greg Berhalter's appointment ethical? Did he remove himself and and um, you know recuse himself? I don't know. I think 
the 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 playing pedigree, the coaching pedigree. I think he has an idea of what he wants to do given the talent he has at his disposal. Um, but here's the thing: we had 13 months of really nothing, and and Dave Sarakin did the best he could with what he was given as the interim coach. But there were a lot of meaningful friendlies. There were a lot of meaningful player um, player camps that it would have been really nice post World Cup to to have some just idea of what U.S. Soccer's qualifying acceptance criteria for a coach might have been. Um, and as fans, like, so I'll take the, the the journalism and the soccer coaching and everything that I know out. As a fan, um, I want the team to do well. I want them to to perform in CONCACAF and I don't see a coaching position. I don't see an, I don't see a lot of communication from the, uh, the president of us soccer. So now I'm wondering how important is it to, uh, USSF that we do a good job and hire the right person. Um, again, am I going to wish the ill on him? Absolutely not. I want him to succeed. Of course I do. Do I think he is going to outcoach Tata Martino? No. <laughs> do I think he's going to outcoach, you know, some of the, the perennial uh, regional teams, I don't think he's going to. I think um, we are – we're at a crossroads because we have a very talented young player pool. We have a very well-groomed player pool that's playing in Germany. We have some really good players in, in MLS that are looking to go play abroad. Can he make the best of melding those players and bleeding them into the, into the, the senior team? The other thing that I would question – can he let the generation of players that failed to qualify, can he just cut them loose and say, you know what, thank you for your um, your dedication and, your, and your, your service to U.S. soccer, but I'm moving on to the younger player pool now. Because one of the things that I feel is always going to be questioned is there are players that, yes, could they still turn out for the U.S.? Josie Altidore and, and some of these players. Yeah, sure. Do we want them to? I don't. I want to see what the younger I want to see what Josh Sargent has. I want to see what Kristen Pulisic. I want, I want to see more of that generation. Tim Weah. I want to see what's going to be here for the next 15 years. I want to see that. So I think Berhalter, there's a lot to be um, a lot to be said, I think, in terms of uh, is he going to be the the guy? I don't believe so. I hope I'm wrong. So that's my that's my, my short answer. It's a long one. I'm so sorry. <laughs> no worries. But he does have a bit more talent to play with. You, you did mention there um, Pulisic, the likes of uh, Weyer. There's McKenney as well over at Schalke. There is a bit more of a talent pool that he could mold. Does Do you see that as kind of the the shining light, the, um, the positive side of this uh, potential resurgence of the U.S. men's national team? Yeah, I think I think I do. I think you know having Haji Wright and uh, Weston McKinney. I think they're both at Schalke. I think you have, you know, I think you have um, some some really interesting cores within the team. So you have like team the core that plays in Germany. Maybe you have players that play in England. You have players that play in the U.S. I think you have some play in Mexico. I think you have um, a number of, of different types of players that we haven't really had in a long time. His job is going to be tough. I think. In terms of, and that's why I mean it's so important to cut loose the the, the former, you know, generation of players. I mean, as, as, as young as they think they are, we talked about the haste at the beginning of this this interview. Um, they're not young anymore, and I think you you want to have some experience for sure. But I, I again, not to, to to compliment England too much, but I, I like what they have done with you know a, a rebrand of of the kind of players that they have on their senior team. I think he has an opportunity to really tap into the talents. And, and the intelligence. I mean, these players aren't over there just because they're skilled. They're also smart. They're also resilient. They're also, you know, malleable. So I think he can do that. He has international playing experience. I mean, he did not just play, um, you know, in in MLS. He's coached in Sweden. I think he, you know, I think he's got the the, the basic skill set. Um, you know, having played Holland, Germany, England, and MLS. I think he, you know, was part of two World Cup squads with the U.S. I think he has the elements. It's up to him to really, you know, extract the most he can each time he's got uh, contact hours with the players. No, John, my question for you is, I know you you, you made a good point. You mentioned, uh, well, we both have mentioned, everyone's been mentioning rather, uh, the abroad, you know, that, that core group of players that's really right now currently playing in the Bundesliga. Um, you know, Sargent, obviously very young. McKenney, who's, who's had Champions League experience, I believe scored a goal in the Champions League as well for Schalke. Um, Tyler Adams, who we're going to be talking about very shortly. He's on his way to Leipzig. 
Of course, Pulisic, who's been there for several years, he's made a, main, a big name for himself at, at Borussia Dortmund since he was really 16, 17 years old. I guess my my question to you is, and I think it's maybe a little bit tough to tough to answer, is why Bundesliga? What do you see in the Bundesliga that fits, um, or, or rather suits as a uh, a platform for young uh, U.S. international players to grow? A couple things. I think the uh, the pathway to player development and player identification is uh, extremely robust there, and I think that there's um, an easier cultural uh, transition from going from the U.S. to to Germany than people think. Um, I I think it's I wouldn't say German is an easy language to speak, but I know um, the players that have gone over there, the interviews I've seen with them, they are speaking near fluent German very quickly. I think the the ability to get good coaching and good uh, resources to them, it's it's a good place to go develop. And I think this, so. There's that pipeline. I think there's also um, Germany doesn't look at like the Zwei Bundesliga as a bad thing. Like they they like having talent in the lower the lower leagues. They like you know um, deploying youth. At the you know the the Bundesliga two level, I think that's an important element. I think it's development first, results second. I think Germany for me is a when they when they did their their rebuild, and you know if you haven't read Das Reboot, um, I encourage everyone to. But it was a really fragmented system prior to the the rebuild, and I think what uh, the DFB had to do was identify what they wanted Germany to serve in terms of the national team, but also. The, the, the clubs. I mean, you can't have a good national team without having a good domestic league and a good domestic system to pull from. So I think it's very um, easy for an American. There might be an, a military aspect of this as well. Um, a lot of Americans are stationed at Ramstein or, or some other bases. I see. So I think there's a, there's that element that we saw with Klinsmann era, a lot of dual nationals. But I do believe that um, Germany is also one of the countries that has a more open mind, is willing to give an American a chance. Um, they're, they're, they're kind of their scouting isn't just in Germany. It's obviously Germany first, but they're looking. I mean, I would I would argue that some of the best clubs and best countries in the world are scouting our players more than we are ourselves. So that's a big. <laughs> a lot of people have probably raised an eyebrow to that. It's true. Um, Taylor Twelman just had a, uh, a a bit with an interview, and he said, you know, if you think for a second that those other clubs aren't coming here for the next, you know, Kristen Pulisic and and at all, like you you are. Um, you're going to be surprised in the next coming years. And I think uh, Germany is just one who's prioritized identifying American talent and they understand the business side of it. They understand that, you know, Americans will buy whatever kit that one of their compatriots is wearing. I think they also understand that um, a lot of uh, Americans support German teams. Um, so I think that there's, there's a pipeline there that we don't see in other countries. And I think emigration is maybe something that's less stringent than if they were to go to uh, to England or, or Spain or Italy. So I think that there's there's probably some political things in there as well. But I think, yeah, it's a good question. There is just such a depth of youth now in Germany. I mean, we touched on Jaden Sancho earlier, Reese Nelson, who we've talked about on this podcast previously. There are young players, even uh, Sergi Gomez, who went to uh, Dortmund from Barcelona. There are these players who are under 19 and they are looking to that league as kind of a breeding ground for them to become that next um, superstar. And I think when you look at an Osmane Dembele who went from Dortmund to Barcelona for a near world record fee, that's that kind of thing um, almost snowballs, doesn't it? You, you look at uh, Jaden Sancho who then says, wow, you know, if Dembele did that, then I can do it. And there are all these players who are looking at the Bundesliga with um, with a thought that this could be the platform to me becoming um, a, gen- a generational player, not only a generational talent. But I think there's one player we want to talk about in uh, specifically who's going over to Manchester City, which is Zach Steffen, um, before we move over to our player profile. And we actually had a couple questions about him, John. Uh, one that came from Reddit. And um, this is from Max Air one two three. Interesting handle. He says uh, Zach Steffen or Ethan Horvath. Uh, who's your pick? So why don't you give us a bit of detail about Zach Steffen? Because uh, obviously um, moving to Manchester City and a very interesting deal. And then talk a bit about uh, comparing those two guys. So if the question is who do I see as the the better goalkeeper, um, I think Zach Steffen is probably 
from from what I've seen is probably uh, more the type of keeper that I that I can uh, relate to. I think in terms of like what I see out of him, his distribution, his poise, his his ability to shot stop and and play with his feet. Um, I think that's apparent with you know the city group, um, you know, purchasing him. I think we also have to understand that you know he is a um, he's a player that had you know experience. Um, you know, throughout the, the youth national team system, you know, even starting, you know, from 2012, the U18s, um, you know, he, he had experience in Freiburg. And I think he, again, he is somebody who um, was voted like the, the, I think the best goalkeeper in MLS or whatever the, uh, the title is. Uh, so he has some very good tools in his, in, his, in his toolbox. I think the other thing is he's got some really good friendlies in under his belt as well. I think he, um, I think he was the, uh, in goal for when we drew France, which everyone in the U S was like amazed at, but it's a friendly, but I think he, he, he just has a, a poise about him. I think he's different than what we've seen before with Tim Howard and, um, you know, Brad Gazan, um, Horvath, I think in terms of, He's been doing it in, in Europe for a while. I mean, he's uh, been in Norway. I think he's at Club Bruges now. I think he he is another very highly rated um, goalkeeper. He's twenty three. So we talk about ages. I think Stefan is 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 a uh, is a younger player. I think he's no. I think I think they're both twenty three actually. But I, I, but I, in terms of you know what they what they bring to the table, I think it's a great it's a great uh, time for them to compete against one another for that for the the starting position with the national team. It also depends on how Burhalter wants to play. If he is going to play, you know, um, you know, four, four, two, like we saw with the Columbus crew, um, you know, it may not matter who can play with their feet. If he's going to um, look for the tool set for the play out of the back, then perhaps, you know, looking at somebody who is more comfortable with the ball at their feet, I, I would say Zach Stefan. Um, but yeah, I see him as the future starter, for the U.S. men's national team, um, you know, I, I don't know if like Bill Hamid or uh, Will Yarbrough or Alex Bono or, and Jonathan Klinsman are are are, are actually going to be in this this discussion. But I think Zach Steffen for me is probably, if I'm assessing the talent, he's probably the uh, the one that I go with. Yeah, that that's a bit of a perfect transition, actually, uh, there, John, because Roberto Grosso from uh, Twitter, at rgrosso84, he asked, will Stefan lock down the long-term starting spot of the U.S. men's national team? Who's in the pipeline for the U.S. who could challenge him? And he uh, highlights Klinsman and Martin Kowski as potential challenges. So you definitely see him as the, the, sure, um, the sure number one for the future? what will that do? You know, I think it's really easy to be a, a very good goalkeeper when people aren't throwing random things at you and, you know, in playing at, at Azteca. So I, I think in terms of the, the purely goalkeeping, I would like to see, um, I think he's the one, um, in terms of the second, I think it's Ethan Horvath on a, he's on an upswing. I mean, he, um, he, he's, probably right above Bill Hamid who struggles for minutes in, I think Denmark. And I think there's uh, you know, I think that there's plenty of competition. It just, it's going to depend on is this U S men's national team player pool going to just say, this is my starter, everyone else come and get it. Or is it going to say this position's up for grabs? And um, I think we have a, I wouldn't say an abundance of riches in this position, but if we do have one position that we can probably glean some quality out of, it's the goalkeeper position. I think we've never really had a, uh, a problem producing competent goalkeeping. But again, we're not going to produce Allison or, or some of these other, um, you know, world, world-class goalkeepers. But we need to get our top goalkeepers meaningful minutes and meaningful competition abroad, in my opinion. I think that really, uh, <laughs> really encapsulates a lot of the... Um the US talent out there but at least some of these guys who are outfield are getting that minimal meaningful competition um in these competitive leagues it's going to be really interesting to see what happens with Zach Steffen whether or not I think we discussed it off air before we started whether or not he goes off to one of Manchester City's feeder clubs 
potentially Girona, uh, and then they bring him in as a number two. It remains to be seen what what their plans are for him, but it's a it's a relatively cheap deal for them. Um, but it will be interesting to see how it impacts his development, won't it? But um, yeah, this 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 has been absolutely awesome, John. You, you've delved so deep into the state of US soccer, uh, and we just want to get onto our our player profile, which is uh, I think you're going to talk to us for about five or ten minutes about Tyler Adams, who's the youngster joining Leipzig in January. What what kind of player is he? Um, who would you compare him to? What's his ceiling? All those great questions that everyone hates being asked <laughs> uh, so it's it's interesting because tyler adams you know going to um again going to uh leipzig he's he's going to team up with somebody who helped develop him and jesse marsh so it's like it's a really good situation for him i think the other the other thing about um and i think um you know again we talked about how, how germany has done well to produce and bring players that again, they can be, he can be an immediate option in the midfield um, and take some heavy development steps as a central midfield um, player in the Bundesliga. So that's important. I think in terms of, you know, we, we are kind of not spoiled, but it's, it's a nice time to to look at American talent in the Bundesliga. Cause so, so, you know, 10, 15 years ago, he might've been one of the only ones. And now it's, you know, he's, he's joining a, a good, robust player pool. And hopefully, you know, there's, that helps him develop as well. I think in terms of um, him as a player, him as a person, uh, I read somewhere he was, he'd been studying German for the last like five or six months. So he's trying to, again, we talked about the language barrier. So he's trying to eliminate that as a, as, as something that um, is, as a 19 year old, that's huge. I think the other the other aspect of this is he's been with the Red Bull Academy since he was 12. And by 15, I think he was playing with the U 17. So he wanted to become a pro and train like a pro from a very young age. Again, Germany, perfect place for that. I think in terms of um, how I see him fitting into that team in, in Germany and then coming back here. I mean, it was really good to see him score against Mexico. It was really good to see him fit in and play well in a pretty chaotic time this last 13, 14 months under Dave Sarikin, um, you know, and, and the teams that he put out there, you know, he had Michael Bradley in the middle, then he had, you know, Will Trapp. And so he had, he had a, a different, uh, you know, center mid pairing all the time. And so um, I thought he was a standout player uh, for the men's national team. I think in terms of, you know, how special is he? That That's the, that's the beautiful part of it. It's like, we don't know. And I think that is, that's what we're looking forward to. Cause I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want him to be an unknown and stay in the States. Like this is the next step. This is the natural progression for him. Um, and so I think in terms of where he goes um, and, and how he does over there, it's almost like he has the uh, the world at his feet in terms of being a 19 year old. So no one's going to expect him to be the next um, Nabikaida, but he's also kind of replacing a void left by him. So, you know, um, this is, this is an interesting time because, you know, uh, people, people look at, um, Leipzig and they, they, they pull players from there, you know, like Liverpool, you know, a couple of years ago wanted Kaida and, and they were heavily linked with him. He signed a contract a year early. So it's not as though he's going to hide to a, a team that's low in the, you know, in the, in the totem pole in Germany. Um, I think in terms of, what you can expect from him. I think the the biggest MLS product to go to Germany would probably be uh, Alfonso Davies from, uh, you know, Vancouver to, to Bayern Munich. Um, but I do think this doesn't diminish um, Tyler Adams going over there as well. I think, you know, working with Jesse Marsh again, working with Ralph um, Ragnick and, and, and kind of having that familiarity to kind of bring him along. Um, it's going to help him. I also think that, you know, he's going to need to um, understand what a defensive midfielder is like in Germany as opposed to an MLS. So he's going to be asked to win balls, distribute quickly, and even join in transition and overload at the attacking end. It's not going to be something that he's going to be able to admire his pass. He's also going to have to, um, you know, compete with a very frenetic and fast style and very tactically disciplined style in, in Germany, both for his team and, and, and against. And I think that that's a it's a tough ask. I mean, this is the football education that you know, every player wants, but he's going to have to have a pass completion rate, probably above 50%, um, you know, under duress. And then 
and going forward, he's going to have to be in the 70 percentile. And I, I don't mean to bring stats into this, but he's going to have to c- c- keep possession. He's got to be, you know, an asset. Because one thing people fail to realize is when a German team or an international team comes from an American, they have to realize that there's probably a hundred domestic products that could do very similar things. And so, you know, be able to back up his signing with performance is, is you know, it becomes a, a weird statistics game as well. So, um, I think he is also um, going to be in environments that test him as, I won't say he's the man in MLS, but he's, you know, he may be out of the spotlight a little bit and it might help his development. You know, they're not going to expect him to be much more than a role player. And that's how you groom yourself. That's how you get those valuable reps. And that's how you um, begin to find your feet, so to speak, um, you know, abroad. And I think that that's a, a massive step for um, for any player going to the Bundesliga. I think I think it's also should be said that going to the Bundesliga over the Premier League, um, he will have time to develop. I think the Premier League is is the, the first stage. I mean, if you can't do it there, um, you know, the game is too it's it's too unforgiving in terms of um, you know putting a 19 year old on the field and taking the risk. I think in Germany. Uh, that's just something that I keep I keep reiterating is you know this is a this is a big deal is to to, to give players young uh, young players chances in 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 Germany. Who would you? I, I know we hate asking this, and me and Matt almost cringe when we ask it. But if you had to compare him to someone, and you mentioned that he has to learn how to play as a defensive midfielder in Germany, is there anyone you'd kind of compare him to currently? Oh gosh, um, I would say. I, I would I would probably want him to be more like it's, it may sound crazy, but like his coach Chris Armas, <laughs> like in, in terms of um, being able to, to to motor around, be I, I hate to use the word terrier, but to to be that 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 guy who um, collects the ball off the back the back line and, and transitions it flawlessly, and then follows that pass. I think every player you know wants to be a uh, you know. I'm not going to say he's going to be an Angola Conte. He's not going to run the the, the whole planet. Um, he's not going to be, you know, uh, you know, a world class central midfielder. But I do think if he could be industrious, like uh, so, I'll, I'll stick with an American, like like a Chris Armas. And I know that sounds really blue collar and really probably uh, not insulting him, but I think if he could just be secure in possession and, and secure on the field and win his one, his one-on-one battles. And, and I think there's that aspect of it um, in terms of, you know, the archetype of what he should potentially be like, if he could do half of what Fabinho does or, or um, Nabi Keita does like something like that would be really dynamic. So a player who finds pockets between the lines can turn and can, can advance the ball forward and then, and then, create overloads. I think that's kind of the next level is, you know, doing the, the, the task of keeping possession and, and, and maintaining, you know, the shape is one thing. Now having the ability to join in and, and play out of that, that role um, with confidence and with competence is, is extremely important. So I think there's, there's that, um, you know, I don't know if that answers the question, but I, I don't, I don't see him as the silky Christian Pulisic, you know, like the, the the winger who glides on the, you know, I don't see that. I see someone who, who likes to, to work. And I think that's going to be an extremely important role for, for Tyler Adams going forward. And John, John, so John, John, Sorry, John usually uh, reacts the same way I do. And I got asked that question. I think it was like on the Simeone uh, player profile. Or Moisey Kane. It's just like, who is he comparable to? And it's like, that's like the first thing that comes out of your mouth. Cause it's so difficult to compare players and, you know, at this point, again, you know, you, you sprinkle in a little bit of Fabinho, a little bit of Keita, uh, you know, certain players here and there. I mean, you you just want Adams to be the, a better version of himself that we've seen in, in the Red Bulls because obviously that's what's going to be required of him, um, you know, going to the Bundesliga and then maybe, you know, further on to maybe even Premier League should he get somewhere there down the line. So, again, comparable for me, comparisons for me, it's always difficult. But, again, I think you, you, you did a great 
you know, great analysis of what you really hope Adams can be um, and what ultimately help him be an effective and uh, you know successful player um, in the Bundesliga. It's so hard to say, isn't it, though, with these guys who are this age, because they could go on to play in a variety of positions, couldn't they? I mean, um, you take a player like Ainsley Maitland-Niles, uh, predominantly a, a midfielder, a central midfielder, but he's played most of his trade at Arsenal in the first team at fullback. And there's loads of players in this kind of same position where they might not play their preferred position at first, so they might morph into a player that we didn't think they were at the beginning of their youth or their career, if that makes sense absolutely i mean being 19 again we have to imagine if you know he says he stays health, healthy he um grows as a as a more dynamic and more tactically flexible player so can you play him in a 4-2-3-1 can you play him in a 4-3-3 can you can you deploy him as you know uh someone who just basically is a destroyer if need be can you can you make him create you know, he, I don't know that he's someone you build around, but he's someone I think you sprinkle in. If we're talking about the national team, um, you sprinkle in, and he begins to to uh, find ways to impact the game. Um, I think that you know, stay healthy. You know, continue your 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 development as a person over there too. I mean, I think that I, I mentioned the fact that he's been with Red Bull Academy for so long. The, the professional mindset is going to take him farther than I think a lot of people. Uh, maybe give him credit for because i think that you know learning german on your own prior to going over there, that's huge um so you know i, I just want to see a center midfielder that takes the ball turns and plays forward not sideways and back like we've seen um i won't name <laughs> names but that's that's i mean but it's a complaint everywhere right i mean like liverpool fans complain about henderson doing so and you know michael bradley's <laughs> literally about to say Jordan Henderson. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's the it's the it's the top of mind for everybody and i think um, one thing that is kind of an alarming thing, though, is I haven't seen Will Trapp and um, Tyler Adams and maybe Wes McKinney play well sometimes in the same systems. And that might be a coaching thing. So, um, you know, when they've been playing together, I, I, I've, I've never really seen them uh, click. I, I can't name games, but just sometimes it's like, you know, you wonder how much he clicks on with other players of similar skill sets, um, you know, in, in, in his age. He's young, 19, you know, playing in the middle of the park is, uh, you know, it's a lot of responsibility. So um, I think that he is part of a very important core though. And I, I do, I do believe that he's lucky that Pulisic is probably going to get all the attention. And, you know, I think in terms of the Americans abroad, but um, you know, I think if Pulisic goes to England and he's, you know, he might be up there with some of the others that he's, people are going to start looking to. So um, yeah, it, it's a tough question. It's an inexact science, right? Player development at the most inexact science in the game it's just you don't know um capturing lightning in a bottle is like you know you get it and then you know how many players are what could have been's or never were's and i think that that tends to become a you know a common theme and you know if if he doesn't succeed in germany does he come back to mls and then does he get slated for that probably uh, but no, he's taking a risk. He's doing the right thing, in my opinion. I hopefully he's got a, a massive upswing uh, with his development of this move. Matt, anything to add there before we uh, wrap everything up? No, that was. I mean, that was that was well done. You know, I think again, you know, for pe- most there's going to be people that listen to this episode, um, MLS fans, you know, Red Bull fans, of course, who who know who Tyler Adams is as a player, um, even people familiar with his, you know, his experience with the men's national team. But for those of the Bundesliga, it's like it's nice that we're tapping into that market and what. You know, Leipzig fans and Bundesliga fans can ultimately expect from this type of player because obviously they're seeing a lot of U.S. soccer players go to the Bundesliga. Um, so that I guess they're going to be curious to see, you know, if Adams can follow in the footsteps of like some McKennies and Pulisic of the world, Sergeant uh, Sergeants, and have that, you know, that early success, albeit at a very young age, and um, maybe kind of, you know. Again, pave the way. I know you mentioned that earlier about a couple other players. Uh, Petra, you know, pave the way for other players to kind of follow suit and say, you know, Bundesliga is an opportunity. And I just want to even point out, too, we saw with uh, Jordan Morris. He was linked to Wolfsburg before he signed that contract with Seattle uh, a couple years ago. So it's it's something that's been kind of been brewing for quite some time. So um, with this crop of players now there, maybe it'll uh, allow for more to uh, be a little bit more motivated and to kind of follow in that footsteps because obviously Bundesliga provides a, a great platform, uh, not only for you soccer players but uh you know english internationals and uh many others 
Definitely. I think um, we're going to see how these guys progress, whether they're in the MLS or in the Bundesliga, as you mentioned, Matt. But John, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on. And uh, I think we've we've kept you a bit too long. Sorry about that, mate. Uh, where can people find out more about you? Uh, we could talk football all day. Um, so the, the most active place for me um, is on Twitter. So uh, my my handle is at John, J-O-N underscore Townsend three. That's where I'm most fiery and opinionated, and I, I sometimes can pull a, a nice tweet thread out and um, you know stir some conversation up. Um, these football times, um, where you can find a lot of mass work, is is where I do my writing, um, and so those are probably the two best uh, places that I can be found. And um, yeah, I, again, I just want to say thank you so much for having me on. It's been a pleasure talking to you both about all things American soccer. Um, you know, I'm, I'm very happy to uh, say that your 11th will probably be another great episode. So <laughs> thanks very much, guys. Really appreciate that, man. Really appreciate you coming on. And it's uh, it's incredible the depth that you went into. But if you want to follow us as a as a pair, you can follow us at State of Play Pod, uh, State of Play P-O-D. And if you, you can email us if you want to, you know, collaborate or work with us in any way at State of Play pod at gmail.com and you can find me at pet barisha p-e-t-b-e-r-i-s-h-a and you can find my wonderful co-host matt where can they find you at matt underscore santangelo i'll keep it short this time (laughs) (laughs) and please give us a review please subscribe and give us some feedback and do leave some questions this is the first time i think we've had more than a couple questions or more than one which has been really good um and look forward to hearing your feedback thank you very much for listening everyone